Hi, I'm Tessie Ojo. I'm the Chief Executive of the Diana Award. Hello, I'm Polly Neat and I'm Chief Executive of Shelter. And together we are hosting a mini-series on the word privilege. So thank you so much, Simon, for joining us. This is our part three of exploring the word privilege and what that means for us. As usual, I'm Tessie Ojo from the Diana Award, and I have with me my co-host. Hello, I'm Polly Neat. I'm the Chief Executive of Shelter, and I'm co-hosting this podcast with Tessie. And we're very lucky in part three to be joined by... Simon Blake, Chief Executive of Mental Health First Aid England. Great. So we're just going to... Thank you so much, Simon, for joining us. And we've been exploring over the past the last three series around um privilege especially in the light of the black lives matter moment and movement i suppose i want to throw a question open to you i would love to hear your reflections on the black lives matter moment and movement just your reflection both personally and professionally and where you are at with the whole agenda Sure. I mean, I think the the most important thing is that a moment and a movement and an ongoing commitment to race equity feels like the most important thing that must come out of this rather extraordinary year. The global uprising, I guess, has been really, really encouraging and, and, and heartwarming and just overdue. Yeah, I think the key thing for me that feels different uh, this time is that the conversation is about whiteness as much as it's about blackness. Mm -hmm. And it's only when we start talking about whiteness and talking about the fact that we we all have an ethnicity um, and understanding that and understanding the different experiences and privileges attached to those, that we can start unpicking that and dismantling the structural inequalities. So for me, long overdue, an acknowledgement in that, that I haven't done enough in my professional life, in my personal life. And that's a privilege in and of itself, a reflection of privilege in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely determined that this this moment isn't a moment, it is a movement. And we keep going until we reach the goal, which is real, true equity. We've been kind of talking about our personal reactions and feelings about it, then ourselves in our organisation as leaders. And then something we've, is really we've increasingly started thinking about as we've been having the previous two conversations is what is our responsibility as civil society leaders even beyond our organisations. And then weirdly, that takes us back to the personal. You have a a history as an activist yourself and have, I know, thought a lot about rights and equity and privilege in different spaces throughout your career. And you've also been part of different causes within civil society. So personal reactions, and then what you feel that means for you as a civil society leader specifically, both within and outside your cause, your, the cause you're working for now and your mission as, a, as an organisation. I, I think that the first thing that I really want to acknowledge, I guess, is that you know, I grew up in a very white part of England. So I grew up in Cornwall. Um, and the first time that I saw anybody that wasn't white was when 
my parents took us on an extraordinary trip to New York. So having not seen anybody that wasn't white until I was seven, I then am in the middle of New York and just looking up and down the streets. And, and so this journey that I have been on, I guess, for the last, what's that? That's 40 years ago, has been one where even after I came back from America, there were only two black people in my school through my whole career until I went through my whole school career until I went to sick form, um, where still very, very, very small minority of people and then got to university and suddenly it was like, oh, my goodness, the world is very different than I understood it to be. So the reason that I just say that is that I think we are all only able to live at the edge of our experience, you know, and that there is only so much that you do in terms of reading and books and films and things. But actually, for so many people, our experience of racial diversity is, is really different. And we come to that as leaders with very different sort of experiences and therefore understanding. But my first real sort of sense around some of the privilege associated with being white was connected to being heterosexual. So I started working the HIV epidemic, where, of course, it was primarily gay men and African communities that were uh, experiencing at the, at the sharp end of the epidemic in, in the UK. And being in a, uh, you know, a white gay man um, and thinking that I was experiencing discrimination and inequity, to then learn and to realise that actually we had enormous privilege compared to some of the funding, resource and access to advice and help uh, from against some of the Af African communities. And then just to, to sort of fast forward that, Polly, when I was at the National Union of Students, you know, in the student movement, the issues around race and, and the black attainment gap and around uh, the experience of racism on campus was a real issue, you know, five years ago. And, and there was a, uh, an independent uh, review of institutional racism within the student movement when I was there in 20, 2015, 2016. And so I think where we where I guess I feel we are now is in a moment where what was something that people used to be afraid to talk about in terms of institutional racism, systemic racism, is very quickly become something that is a given. Most of us, I think, within civil society, but certainly everybody that I'm speaking to is no longer afraid to say we have an issue. And that's a real shift because um, when the NUS uh, review around institutional racism uh, was taking place, nobody else was saying it. So there was a fear that this organisation was going to be perceived as worse than many other organisations, whereas now you know, there is no better or worse in this. If we are not actually equitable, we are not good enough. Um, and as leaders of our own organisation, we have a responsibility to, um, as a white leader, I have to acknowledge what I do and don't know. I have to feel confident enough to feel incredibly vulnerable about the things that I don't know and could get wrong. Learn how to ensure amplifying and ensuring that the, the voices of black people and people of colour are heard and be an ally and feel okay about recognising that I'll probably get that wrong at certain points. And then finding people who are going to learn and be comfortable sharing their experiences. So there's a, a personal responsibility to, you know, to, to read, to learn, to understand how this touches every part of our lives. And then how do we find people like the people who will be listening to this podcast who want to do better? And then how do you take that into your personal life? 
I have for the last five or six years been trying to engage with some members of my family and uh, networks who have been racist. And when they are not changing, have blocked some people on social media because I no longer see them in real life, if that's the case. And then in other cases yeah, where some people will be repeated, they're just like, do not do that in front of me. And, and have actually tried to reflect back to when that happened the first time and I felt very uncomfortable doing it. So now it's like, the second it happens, you know, it, it's straight out. And I'm leaving if you continue this conversation. What I guess we're learning through all of this, or I'm learning, is this isn't something you switch on and switch off, which of course mm-hmm. is something that as white yes. people we've often been able to do. It is something that is there in everything we do. And if we all commit to that, then gosh, change is going to come. If we don't commit to it, we'll continue uh, you know, in the way that we have with these structural inequalities yeah, they 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 mm. they might be moved out of one part of society, but just bubble up in another. So, civil yeah. society leaders, I think we're the custodians of of change mm. here. It feels there is no social justice without racial justice. How do we go beyond the calling out? How do we move on to that next stage where we're actually building systems and structures within organizations that even prevents things like that from happening? Because sometimes it's easy to call out what you see. What about the things you don't see? What about the the belittling, the things that happen when you're not there behind your back? How who calls those things out? When, when we work it out, I think we should patent it and we, we uh, do, but, but this is where the sharing that I guess for me, there is something where we have to throw everything that we have learned into question. And we have to recognise that there have to be different ways of doing things because the way that we are doing things is upholding the system, which is perpetuating the privilege. The, the bit for me within that is recognising that the because there is an absence of direct racism, it doesn't mean there's the absence of a lot of privilege. And I yeah. think it's easier for us to call out racism than it is to question our privilege, because oh, until completely. we recognise that everything that we understand is privilege, um, based on our life experience and the edge of that, then we will find it difficult. So for me, I guess where people talk about short lists and long lists, there is a bit which is it's great. You can have all the, the diverse shortlists in the world, but until we get people actually getting the jobs, then nothing changes. All you've done is said that you have improved the process. And so our, our job has to be to find the ways to improve the outcome through a fair and transparent process. And we also have to recognise we are accountable to people and people should be questioning us. If we are not saying in almost everything you do, we're doing some recruitment at the moment. And the question was, how do we ensure that we are going to get an outcome which shifts the dynamic in the way that we want it to? And, and, And that required us to to have some really difficult conversations. And the most difficult Mm. bit was people actually going, okay, we're willing to give this a go. We're willing to stand behind it as a way of giving it a go. And if it doesn't get the outcome, or if people are able to find holes in it, then we have to learn from that. Tessie, you're one of very, very few black chief executives. That has to shift. And and until it is shifting, trustees of charities, chairs of of social enterprises, you need to be asking themselves what's happening from the from the brand image through to the selection process through to the to, to the outcome 
that we're getting. And I think too often we're seeing, I guess to your very question, how do we create systemic change? We have to look from beginning to end. There's no, we could have the perfect selection and recruitment process, but if your brand isn't attracting people in the first place, then people aren't going to get to that process. I think we have to be much more fleet of foot as well and prepared to try different things because actually based on that your notion Simon that it's the outcome that really matters most we have to be prepared to test things against that outcome and if they don't deliver it try something else yeah and I also think it's about accepting the that the notion that I think culturally for white people in the UK is very very ingrained is the idea, and of course that's an idea perpetuated by people with privilege, like me, but is the idea that we live and work in a meritocracy. And it's very challenging because what it means is that you didn't earn your job, you didn't earn your position. And we have to lead our organisations to understand that we are not a meritocracy. We are a privilegeocracy, in fact. And so we have to take radical action in order to change the outcome Mm. because to change the outcome does require doing things differently and I think as well a bit of experimenting and we won't always get it right and we need to be able to change tack if we realise something isn't working. We do and at the heart of that has to be the willingness uh, to give up power. What does giving up power look like in a real and genuine way? Yeah, I I completely agree with you, Polly, that this whole piece of um, uh, a notion of a meritocracy, I mean, is just absolute nonsense. I I have all sorts of power, but I come from a working class family. And if you were to sit around my family at Christmas dinner, you know, they believe it's because I worked hard. Um, there's, There's some working hard that's happened along the way, but there's been an awful lot of privilege and opportunity and doors opened and people wanting to support as well and we as civil society have to go how do we do how do we create that privilege uh, for people of color and and black people we have to start being more radical and and impatient for change I guess that's the other bit which I say how do you create system change be impatient. I think we've, I know that I take responsibility for having lacked impatience. We need change. I'm just ashamed uh, and sorrowful um, that I didn't take that earlier. You know, I was a trustee of the Black Health Agency from 2004 to 2010. I learned an enormous amount about institutional racism at NUF. I shouldn't have been complacent. You've used a few words, Simon, that I feel we've has been repeated in all the other um, series. You've used shame. You've used the privilege of complacency. Firstly, I agree with everything that you said, because I think that we can't wait. Like as much as we need to act, I also have a sense, I think from, from my work with young people, I have a sense that young people are demanding more from us. I don't think that uh, the young people today will wait for us to get our house in order. They, they, don't, they don't have that patience like my generation had. And so change is so needed now, or I have no idea what would happen, especially to the civil society, if we remain static. I think there's a potential risk that we will destroy ourselves if we, if we don't change. We, we've been talking about change, and you've used the word about power and shifting power. It's very uncomfortable to hand over power. No one ever hands power easily. And I say that even as a person of colour, how do we do this? As a sector, as individuals, as our organisations, how do we shift power? How do we share privilege? 
can I just start by saying one of the things which I'm very conscious of as I talk about shame is I, I, I just want to be really clear that I acknowledge that's for me to deal with and that I, I don't want it to be in any way a distraction from it because it's nowhere, you know, it's just, it's irrelevant. So just conscious having said it, that I wanted to be careful that I don't think it's of any consequence, except that I, I'm conscious that I should have done things different, differently. How do we share power? The, the thing which I think is really interesting in, in lots of these conversations about power sharing is that sometimes we try to have the answer before we try mm. things out. You know, how do we just start saying we've got to start doing some things differently? And we've all done that in all sorts of different ways, whether that's allowing people to have the fact that they work for Shelter or the Diana Ward in their Twitter bio and recognising that they're not always on brand with you and allowing that to happen, or whether it is getting children and young people or service users on the board. And some organisations wait until they believe they've got the perfect answer. And some organisations get on and try something. And when it goes wrong, learn from it and do. And I think... The, the particular issue for me that feels around race is that we've got to be mindful not to recreate more trauma in the mm. way that we start going about trying to understand power and power sharing. And I don't know how to do that, except to say that the starting point has to be acknowledging if you don't have a diverse board, if you don't have a diverse exec team, if you don't have you know, people at all levels within the organisation from different backgrounds. Your job is to find ways to do it, to acknowledge that power is being upheld in particular ways and to look for people who have who have learned, to look for people who have found ways to do it, to understand where things work. We're so good as a culture, it seems to me, at looking at what could go wrong or what could cause us problems rather than going, there's a problem here. I'm doing my best to try and address it. I'm going to look, I'm going to research, I'm going to find, and then I'm just going to take a leap. And if it goes wrong, I'm going to put my hands up and I'm going to own the fact that it's gone wrong because risk of I love that. I mean, I think that is such a profound challenge to our sector because I think we are in often a very uh, slow, risk-averse, unexperimental sector a lot of the time. And we do ourselves a disservice in all kinds of endeavours through that. But this in particular, I feel, but maybe that's unfair. I, I, I don't think it's unfair. And I think if you if you think that we are we often you know, recruit in, in, in the same vein and, and for the most senior jobs, you are, are relying on a group of volunteers um, who feel uh, you know, with a charity commission, which is you know, very, very clear about everything that could go wrong um, and public uh, trust and all sorts of things. And so I'm going, OK, I can either take what I believe is the safe route or I can go on an experimental journey. You know, we had the best laid plans, the less that best laid risk registers. Did it help us on March the 23rd? No, it didn't. <laughs> Has it helped us since? No, it hasn't. Thinking no. on our feet, oh trying things God. out, doing yeah. stuff which feels uncomfortable is all that has got us through this last six months and is starting to become hardwired into the sector. And, and I think as, as chief execs, we all need to kick up the ass, quite honestly. And if we're not thinking about this, and if it's not on our mind all of the time, if we're not asking a question, if it's not on the priority list, then we need to be asking ourselves why. We've got to lead by example. 
absolutely 100 percent I don't have anything to add to that. I'm so like in so in agreement, aren't we, Tessie? We're like, yeah, exactly. Just thinking about the role of the CEO. So I think it's, I don't think it's easy, but I think there's an obvious role for us in challenging our own organizations. And we are the CEO. We really ought to be able to, if any, you know, we have to do that. There's not a whole bunch of other people who are going to come along and challenge our organizations if we're not prepared to do it. But I just wonder about what you think our responsibilities are as civil society representatives within sort of the wider society and the wider culture. Is there a a role that we need to have beyond our organisations as well? The fact that you're asking the question says that we definitely don't do enough of it. and, uh, And I think that we could do more of it. Polly, you and I were part of that group of people asking for the British honours system yes. to shift from empire to excellence. Yeah. And the spirit of that was about using our position of power in society to tr- try and create a change which is much bigger and much wider than civil society. So that's one example. We sometimes, I think, get complacent that we've got good values and therefore the work that we do is good, Mm -hmm. rather than we have to actively be demonstrating that good standing, live those values in in what we do. Mm -hmm. The other piece for me, which I think is a a bigger challenge for us, is how do organisations with privilege and power help Black-led organisations who are influencing change within communities? who are often less able to access the fundraising channels, the fundraising expertise. You know, and there's been a long conversation, hasn't it, about how do the big organisations help the little organisations? And I think it's more nuanced than that. Can an organisation fulfil its mission if it isn't finding ways to work with organisations who are much better at reaching into communities and through communities where some other organisations might be saying they're hard to reach, when actually we know that their know-how, the understanding, the ability to reach is there, maybe just not within our organisation. Totally and utterly agree with that. And and it does challenge us as larger organisations to um, constantly go back to what we're actually there for, I think. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a place for actually the Charity Commission really demanding a bit more accountability what I would just challenge us one step further is let's not wait for the Charity Commission to do that. Let's just start doing that ourselves. Regulation tends to catch up. So let's start that and and let's really really lead that from the beginning. So when talking about civil society creating change, let's own it. Let's be the people who are at the vanguard of, of this. Um, And I guess I just also want to say that as the big organisations, what we mustn't do is absolve ourselves as responsibility by saying, oh, we're working with other partners. Yeah, there's a a twin track uh, here, which is really, really important. What you've just made me remember, Tessie, I think is a really important bit for us. We could start facing inwards and start looking about staff profiles, start looking about uh, who's in senior roles within our organisations, but we mustn't let that distract us from at the same time thinking about the beneficiaries, purpose, the people yeah. we work with and achieving yeah. our purpose. Those yeah. two things have to go yeah. hand in hand. Absolutely. I think some of that as well is how we... So there's a, a sense of 
the sector being very close to the state or close to government, close to uh, public sector commissioning, for example, and the sort of wanting to be in those spaces where there's a certain sort of power. And I guess what we need to do is a much more rigorous analysis of where change is realistically going to happen. Again, this is about giving up some privilege. And I think that is quite important because there are huge privileges that go with the role of being a charity CEO. Some of them are about access, profile, a voice, access to people that lots of other people would like to have access to but don't. How much is that access a privilege that we're using to make change happen? Or how much of it is just a privilege that we've just got? And, and I think your point there is, is, is absolutely right, is it sometimes it creates change and sometimes it is just an activity. Yeah, that, that has to, we have to be brave. Yeah, we have to be able to just be clear about what we're trying to achieve. And I guess the one other bit which I would just say is we've also got to challenge each other. You know, I've, I've had several conversations around anti-racism, people saying there's a lot on at the moment. It's like, you know, COVID may be dominating, but, you know, the other inequalities, you know, the, the racial inequalities, a range of other issues, we can't only pay attention to one thing. We have to challenge justice and injustices wherever, wherever they exist. We've been talking about change and pushing ahead with change. And we know that campaigning activism can be exhausting. As charity leaders, how do we maintain resilience? How do we build ourselves up to make sure that you've got that energy and that fuel inside of you to just keep going? I think the important thing that I want to just start with on this, test is recognising that for some people, this will be personal as well as professional and be experiencing racism at the same time as fighting racism. And so the answer isn't the same for all of us. And I think for me, as a white man, I can't even imagine how exhausting racism is on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And therefore, my resilience uh, and my determination has to come from a recognition that however exhausted any white person may feel, it is nothing compared to the lived experience of people experiencing racism. As civil society uh, leaders, we we are in leadership positions because hopefully we have demonstrated resilience and, and an ability to push forward on the issues that we care about and that we see as a priority and that we are being are working on. For me, it is a case of we have to ensure that racial justice is integrated into everything that we do. We support each other. We help each other. We understand allyship and what it, it means to also amplify and, and ensure that we are not taking platforms Um, from people of colour and black people when those platforms should be being held and you're creating the spaces. The thing which I really, really want to get better at is doing the activity of allyship on a day-to-day basis in the way that we all have a responsibility to do. If people are feeling tired or exhausted, our personal responsibility, a mental health organisation, you know, our personal responsibilities around self-care and around support, our well-being and our gut chairs responsibility to have those conversations with us. But that has to be as part of being in the round. Um, this this has to be seen as, as part of our everyday jobs, right at the heart of what we're doing. And that is about creating change every single day. 
Very important word, self-care. Yeah, no, absolutely. Polly, did you want to? No, my thought was exactly like Simon's, which is that I think part of the way to be resilient for as a, and I am again speaking as a white leader, is to accept this is part of your job. So you're not being asked to do something additional, <laughs> extra. Um, this is yeah. your job. Obviously, as a black female leader, you know, sometimes you're pushing a cause that you leave that's also your lived experience and so sometimes it feels like it's you're you're dealing with it twice over and I think that it's important just as we've all said to step away if it feels too much especially when you want sometimes you just want to have a separation from your lived experience and what your um your camp what your activism is but I suppose on one hand, I'm lucky in the sense that I have a great ally of you guys, for example, that I want to know that I've got great allies who, even if I have to step off the treadmill for a bit, that you don't have that personal exhaustion, like, that you don't feel the same way, but I can rely on you to keep the button going. And I think there's something about having the confidence that even when I feel incredibly exhausted by it because it's my everyday living, I can rely on my colleagues because they got it and they've got my back on this one and they would push ahead. And when I feel, when I feel ready, I can step back on the treadmill and join in. And, and Tessie, I, I hope that we uh, live up to that and want to. And if there's ever a moment at which we don't, please direct feedback because yeah, we all need to say it straight. I'm hoping that's the whole point of this whole series. It's that rallying cry, it's that come on guys, let's do this. Like you rightly said, Simon, it's not waiting for the charity commission, although I, I do know where legislation happens, which is the dynamics of things, but that, that yeah. our, our sector leaders hear this and, are, and just pick up the pattern and go with it. I think when we see that people are doing it, it just gives you comfort and allows you to every now and again step off that treadmill because it's, it's your everyday life. One of the things my colleague, a person of colour said, a woman of colour said the other day is we've got to have hope. And that lots of that hope comes from how white people decide to act. And yeah. we see white peers and colleagues deciding to act. Let's hope that this is a moment for hope. What a brilliant way to end. Hope. That's what I was just about to say. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Simon, yeah. for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. It's been such fun and I love the word hope. I live by hope. So we have hope. <laughs> <laughs>